page 1039, uh, Luke 9, verse 23, we read, Then he said, Jesus said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Early in the 20th century, the polar uh, explorer Ernest Shackleton put an advert in uh, some of the London newspapers. He was wanting to recruit men for his expedition. And the advert ran, men wanted for a hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months in complete darkness, constant danger, safe return uncertain. Now, not uh, surprisingly, there were very few applicants for the post. But to Shackleton's credit, uh, he did not uh, undersell the dangers of the expedition. He could never be accused of luring people to come with him on false pretenses. And similarly, the Lord Jesus Christ never sought to underestimate, to, to play down the cost of following him. Uh, we're used to people who are looking for our money or looking for our commitment, uh, playing down the cost. You know, whether someone's trying to sell you a warranty for your car or trying to make, uh, sign you up as a member for uh, some club or, or trust, Usually the cost that's involved is played down and we're naturally wary of that kind of approach. But never with Jesus. If anything, he always uh, points up the cost of following him. And so uh, we have it in these verses. We, we're coming to these words of Jesus after something of a high point in the Gospel of Luke we have this declaration by Peter of who Jesus is. Peter says, you are the Christ of God. There's been this lead up to that point where Jesus has been demonstrating by word and deed who he is through the feeding of the 5,000. Certain uh, of the questions concerning his identity have been answered. Uh, there have been these questions floating around. In the minds of the crowd, is he Elijah? Is he John the Baptist come back from the dead? Is he another of the prophets? Peter says, you are the Christ of God. And because the, the term Christ is quite a loaded term, uh, in many people's minds, it had to do with uh, God's deliverer coming and possibly bringing in a political deliverance. Jesus goes on immediately to say that he's not the kind of Christ they have in mind. He is someone who will be rejected. He will be handed over to the religious leaders and they will put him to death. And on the third day, he will rise again. And in the other gospel, in Mark's gospel, we're told that Peter doesn't like this. In fact, Peter uh, takes Jesus aside and gives him a right good talking to and says, 
Master, this, this will never happen. And Jesus identifies this as the word of Satan. Uh, he more or less tells Peter that he's lost the plot. That this has to be the way. And, and so it is now that Jesus tells the people that if he is going to suffer, so also will the people who follow him have to suffer. And we have this uh, terms of, of commitment, this, the, the terms of being a disciple laid out very clearly. And not only to the disciples, but also to the crowd. Uh, Luke says simply that he said to them all, Mark 8, 34 says, then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples. And I think that's quite significant because this is a word that goes out to all people. It's not just if it were just the disciples. We could have said, well, you know, the, the standards for apostles were pretty high, but, you know, we can sign up for Christianity light. You know? uh, but it's not like that. This is the standard for all who would follow Jesus. There is no such thing as Christianity light. It's a standard of 100% commitment. Now, there's a difficult verse at the end of the section, verse 27. I'm not dodging it. Uh, We're going to come and look at it, God willing, next time, because I think it has a lot to do with the... The, the following uh, section on the transfiguration. So we're going to confine ourselves to looking at what Jesus says about the cost of being a Christian and then also what he says about putting that cost in an eternal perspective. So the cost of being a Christian and the cost put in perspective. The cost of anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The original uh, language has got the, the, uh, the impact of saying that he must deny himself, take up his cross, and in doing so, follow me. So following Jesus means denying yourself and taking up your cross, and taking up your cross daily on a day-by-day basis. And the first thing to say is that this cross-bearing that we are to do, and this denial of our rights that's spoken of, flows out from what Jesus himself has done. He is the model of turning your back on rights and embracing suffering for others. Just listen to what Paul said about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus' death and resurrection has for his people worked out a principle for our living that life comes through dying. If you're going to know life, then there has to be a kind of death take place in your experience. Jesus once verbalized this in agricultural terms. He said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, 
it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. There is this spiritual principle that you won't know life until you know a kind of death. That's what Jesus is expressing here at the very outset of Christian commitment. Any man would be would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. Denying yourself is basically it's a refusal to accept that you've got a right to run life your way. Okay? A refusal to accept you've got the right to run life your way. The word uh, for deny here is the same word that's used when Peter denies Jesus. Uh, before Jesus' trial, remember Peter's in the, 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 uh, the courtyard of the high priest's house and he's kind of cornered and he wants to get out of a difficult situation and denies knowing Jesus. Repudiates Jesus. Denounce, renounces, disowns him. That's the same kind of idea here. If you're going to deny yourself, you're renouncing yourself. You are repudiating your self-rights. You're turning away from the idea that I am the center of my universe. That's what it means to deny yourself. It's pulling down that idol of self-centeredness which occupies the heart of everyone's life until they come to this point. Now, this really is a deeply ingrained instinct that I have a duty almost to look after myself. I have a duty to to love myself, to look after number one. The experts in all kinds of fields tell us that we should love ourselves, pamper ourselves, fulfill our own needs. To the extent that Jesus' words sound in modern ears like psychological heresy. It goes against the grain of all that you hear around you, telling you to love yourself. Uh, All the advice for self-preservation, self-promotion. Jesus is telling you, you've got to deny these instincts. Deny yourself. So this is a big deal. This is much bigger than giving up crisps so that you can get back into these genes again. Much bigger than self-denial than that. It's denying something which is quite basic to the, the sinful human nature. Putting self always first. So... Following Jesus, becoming a Christian, uh, isn't just about uh, making your life better than it is. Finding that there's something in Christianity which can fulfill you. That little uh, bit extra that will fill up the void in your life. Jesus is not just another spoke in the wheel of your life. And if that's what you think it is, then that first step of commitment, which is dethroning self, has never taken place and you cannot possibly be a Christian. If Christianity is simply about uh, having a little extra happiness in your life. 
Jesus puts this requirement to deny yourself, to hand over control of your life to him at the very beginning of the Christian life. Now, you might be thinking, who has got the right? Who has the right to tell me what to do with my life? No one's got the right to tell me what to do with my life. I will do with my life as I want. I'll go and spend my holidays where I want. I'll live where I want. I'll handle my personal relationships in the way I want. No, there is a self-assertiveness that reacts strongly against what Jesus is saying here. How do we respond to that? Well, there is someone who has every right to tell you what to do with your life. God has every right to tell you what to do with your life because God made you in his image. He gives you every breath you take. And if you are in his world, and you are, and if he has a purpose for human living, and he has, then surely it is foolish in the extreme to deny his rights over your life. He has that right. Jesus puts that right at the beginning of Christian living. Now, it's not easy. It's not something that is naturally done. There are, there are some things you can deny yourself, and it takes a bit of effort. You can do it. You can give up cigarettes, and that's, I'm told it's very hard to do that, but you can do it over, over a course of time, and there are things that can help you. It's very hard. You can't deny yourself in the way that Jesus says. You can't hand over the, 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 the power of your life to the Lord Jesus Christ unless something supernatural is happening. Unless the Holy Spirit's begun to work in your life. Unless you have become captivated by the beauty of the Lord Jesus, awestruck by his goodness and truth, so that you gladly come and yield your life to him. Something like that must happen. Praise God when you feel it happening in your life. So that with gladness you renounce your rights over your own life and hand them to Jesus. Jesus follows the call to deny self with the call to take up your cross uh, day by day. Okay, what is taking up your cross? Taking up your cross is saying yes to the fact that there's going to be an element of hardship. There, there will be affliction as part of the Christian life. There's going to be a, a daily taking up the cross. Not something that you just do at a time of conversion and that's the end of it. Uh, it has, it's a daily attitude. I'm going into this day recognizing that being a follower of Jesus Christ may mean hardship for me, may mean opposition of some kind. To go back to the original picture, somebody who was taking up his cross in Jesus' name, somebody who was carrying his cross, wasn't going on a walk to the beach. He was going on a walk to the place of execution. He was carrying the, the, the centerpiece so that it could be raised up with him on it. He was going to his death. He was embracing the jeering of the crowd as he walked that road. The contempt of the people who looked on him as a criminal. 
Now, when we, when we say, oh, I have my cross to bear, we're usually using the expression in a very trivial way. We're speaking about a difficult mother-in-law or a noisy neighbor or something like that. And it's a world removed from what Jesus is saying here. It's not what Jesus means at all. He's saying that when the only good man who ever lived in this world showed what goodness is, they put him to death on a cross. And those who follow him cannot expect to be treated better. So how does it work out? What, what's the day-to-day value of that? Well, we were praying this morning for Iraq. To be a Christian in Iraq means a very real possibility of actual crucifixion. Isn't it awful that in this day, in this 21st century, 2014, there are Christians in Iraq who have been crucified because they are Christians. Let me just uh, quote an eyewitness account uh, from a few weeks back. Eyewitness spoke of atrocities in Iraq. Those Christians who refused to embrace Islam were killed in atrocious and violent ways that cannot be described. If you want examples, they crucified two youths in Malula for refusing to proclaim Islam's credo, saying to them, perhaps you want to die like your teacher whom you believe in. You have two choices, either proclaim the Shahada or else be crucified. One of the two who was crucified was crucified before his father, whom they also killed. If you become a member of the church in some African countries, uh, you'll stand before the the church and the minister will ask you, uh, do you believe in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Which is what we ask every uh, would-be member here. And they'll ask another question which we don't have in our liturgy. Are you ready to die for Jesus? Because it's a practical uh, reality. Practical reality. Now, in our Scottish context, what does it mean to to suffer for Jesus? Well, we we thank God that we are removed from that, from that uh, prospect of of physical violence. But it does mean that uh, people will scorn you uh, for being a Christian, uh, that they will uh, look down on you, perhaps. Uh, they're not going to... There's not going to be a queue at your door with uh, bouquets of flowers because you've decided to follow Jesus. It's not going to be a fast track to promotion because you have decided to follow Jesus. Uh, And people who tell you that being a Christian is the route to health and wealth and happiness are counterfeiting the gospel because Jesus did not say it was like that. There is a cost. Jesus says that we must embrace that cost and he called it taking up your cross that is what it means to be a Christian there's a cost but Jesus also puts that cost in perspective he puts that cost in perspective and he says there are three contrasts whoever wants to save his life now will lose it but whoever loses his life for me will save it losing 
and saving life. Uh, you know, in, in uh, most people, if not all people, there is something in us that wants to play safe. Yeah? Uh, we want to play safe. We want, uh, as much as is possible, to sit on the fence. We want to avoid getting involved with Jesus because it quite simply sounds too costly. Uh, you want to save yourself the commitment. You want to avoid the potential opposition. You want to enjoy, if you can, a quiet life. Uh, sitting there, somewhere on the fence, living a life. It's not a bad life, but it's not a committed life to Christ. It's a nice life, and surely a life that will get you by. Aha, Jesus says, I do not know about the idea of living a safe life. Because you are not created to live a safe life. You are created to burn brightly for my glory. And if you try to live the safe life, you will lose your life. The very act of seeking to save your life will mean that you lose it. You lose the true life that can be enjoyed now in this world and then, when you die, you will lose the eternal life that is only found in Jesus. Heaven's door will be shut to you. And so playing safe isn't an option, Jesus says. Jesus presses the issue home. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world but lose or forfeit his very self? It's a kind of mathematical question. Like, like the Americans would say, do the math. You know? Weigh out the pros and cons. On the one side, put into the, 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 the pan of the, of the scales all the things that the world can give you. All the kind of things that you'll see in Hello Magazine, OK Magazine, uh, Modern Homes. Financial Times, all the, the glitz and glamour, the power, the wealth, the pleasure that the world can give you. What's true of all these things? They don't last. They come to an end. Uh, the good looks fade. The wealth is spent. The health goes and so on. Even the people that seem to be the wittiest, uh, most full of life, the most successful, find that they can't hold on to the things that they chased. You know the actor Robin Williams, one of the most genuinely funny actors of all time maybe, with a huge following, and yet he found that divorce and ill health and financial hardship ate away at his happiness until he could no longer bear to live. So sad. And what for some seems to be an escape route, all this talk of a person's right to die, and so on, ignores the fact that you and I have immortal souls which are not extinguished, but which will go on either in eternal war or eternal bliss. That's sadly not, not figuring much in discussions today. It doesn't come into the equations when people uh, evaluate their lives, doesn't it? You have a soul. You're not just a body. You're not like 
a, a slug or a starling or a blade of grass. God has placed within you eternity. You have been made in the image of God. You can do things which the beasts of the field cannot do. You can communicate profoundly to other people. You can enjoy a sunset. You can enjoy the comic genius of somebody like Robin Williams. You can deny yourself. We're thinking of the Titanic. You know when the Titanic went down, when the Titanic hit that iceberg... You know, there were stories of great chivalry and heroism as, as husbands and fathers stepped by to allow uh, women and children to take to the lifeboats in order that they might be saved, whilst they themselves went to a watery grave. The Titanic had been full of cattle. Would the bulls have stepped by to allow the cows to go into the lifeboats? Or the cows step by to let the calves enter the lifeboats? We're different. We have been given a soul. A soul which is eternal. You will never become nothing. What you are at the core of your being, you are forever. And to lose that or forfeit it is to lose something Eternally. How foolish we are if we ignore the, the eternal perspective on our lives. <coughs> George Whitfield was a famous uh, English evangelist, and he told once of seeing two men going to, the, going to a hanging, and they were going to the hanging in a cart, cart drawn by horses. And what struck him as so incomprehensible was that the two men were arguing about who sat on which side of the cart. Like two children uh, without parents to supervise them, arguing about where they sat in the cart. And they were going to their death. And he said, that's like so many of us, you know, preoccupied with things which are so trivial and ignoring things which are eternally significant. What will profit a man Gain the whole world and lose his soul. In 1000 AD, the officials of uh, the Emperor Otto opened up the grave of uh, Charlemagne, the great uh, ruler. And in the midst of all the, the, the finery that was buried with him, uh, the gold, the jewelers, jewelry, the, the reminders of his great reign, uh, there was the skeleton of Charlemagne himself wearing a golden crown. And he had been so arranged that his bony finger was pointing at a verse in an open Bible. This verse. What will it profit a man? If he gained the whole world, he loses his soul. I wonder what Charlemagne, how he answered that question. Finally, Jesus warns us that if anyone is ashamed of him and his words in this life, then on the last day when he comes in his glory to judge the world, he will be ashamed of that person. It's a solemn warning by Jesus that one of the chief reasons why people do not follow him 
uh, is shame. People are ashamed of Jesus and his words, and because of that reason, they don't follow him. Uh, it's true, isn't it? Those of you who are Christians, if you think back to those, those times, however long it was, when the Holy Spirit was pulling at your, your heart and drawing you to a decision, there was that fear of what others would think. You know, I don't want to be called a, a Bible thumper. <laughs> I don't want to be thought of being connected with that crowd that no one likes. And we're afraid of, of the sneering of people that we think are, are more cool than Christians. People who are worldly wise. And because of shame, people say no to Jesus. But there comes a point when we will have to give an account to Jesus. And because he is just, he will deal justly with us. And if we have said no to Jesus in this life, he will say no to us on the day when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And those who have closed the door on Jesus in this life will find that the door is shut on them on that day. There is that awful symmetry to our choices. And those who are ashamed of Jesus will find that he is ashamed of them. There's a story told about a king who had all that the world could give him. Uh, but what he loved more than anything else was to laugh. And once when he was being entertained, a jester came along and wanted to join in the, the festival of activities and wanted also to perform for the king. And his opportunity came and he put on his best comical show, the best show he'd ever done. And the king laughed louder than he had ever done before. Once it was all over, the king wanted to, to hire the jester to be his own personal jester. And once he was in the, the employment of the king, the, the king, uh, in high spirits, gave the king, gave the, the jester, rather, a stick and said to him, you're the most foolish man alive. I want you to take this stick, and if you ever come across a man more foolish than yourself, you're to pass it on to him. Well, after many years, the king lay sick on his deathbed and he was ready to die at any moment. He called for the jester. He wanted to laugh one more time before he died. But when the jester was brought in, he thought it was time to speak seriously to the king. And so he asked the king, uh, Your Highness, where are you going? And the king said, I'm going on a long journey. The jester asked again, And how do you plan to get there? king said, I don't know. The jester asked again, what preparation have you made for this journey? The king rather solemnly said, well, I've had a long time to prepare, but I have to confess I've made no preparation for the journey. And the jester took that stick and gave it to the king and said, king, today I found a man more foolish than I for you. You see, I only trifled with things that are of this life, but you've trifled with things of eternity. That's what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? He's saying for us to compare things which are going to vanish away, things which are of only fleeting value, put them in the balance, 
and compare them with things that will last forever. Wouldn't it be so foolish for someone to uh, invest all they had in building a house and furnishing a house, knowing full well that they had built on land which wasn't zoned for building, and that when they had exhausted all of their money, they would not be allowed to enter into that home which they had piled all of their earthly belongings. That's what it's like like to ignore the words of Jesus. To be rich in this world and poor for eternity. And that's why Jesus asks the question, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet to lose or forfeit his very self? Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the abundant life that is found in your Son, Jesus. Uh, We thank you that though uh, there is a cost attached to following him, yet we thank you that uh, we are so much the the gainers when when we come to, to hand over the reins of our life to him. We pray, Lord, that we will see things clearly and with a true sense of perspective, we will commit ourselves uh, for this life and for eternity uh, to Jesus, who for our sakes came and turned his back on his privileges and his glory, that he might bring us uh, to himself and know his glory, his love and his presence. Bless the gospel to us. Bless this message of good news. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to finish our service singing. Uh,